Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host, Mary Fran Johnson, CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media and a contributing columnist on CIO.com. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live, and we're streaming right now to you on both LinkedIn and on IDG's Tech Talk channel on YouTube. With today's episode, we welcome a brand new sponsor, Cisco, the worldwide leader in technology that powers the internet. Cisco inspires new possibilities by reimagining your applications, securing your data, transforming your infrastructure, and empowering your teams for the future. You can learn more about what they're up to at newsroom.cisco.com. We welcome all of our viewers and our listeners today to join in this conversation and submit questions of your own since we're taking advantage of this live streaming format. We will be watching for your questions and doing our best to pass them along to today's guest. And I'm very pleased to welcome to CIO Leadership Live today, Russell Carlotto, who is the Vice President and CIO of Clemson University in Clemson, South Carolina. Russ joined the university in 2017, bringing with him 35 years of IT leadership experience in several fields in higher education, government, healthcare, research, and even media. As the CIO, his responsibilities at the university have spanned all of campus IT systems, network infrastructure, cybersecurity, and research support. Clemson serves more than 25,000 students and 5,000 faculty and staff and it generates over $250 million annually in research grants. Russ has an unusual dual role at the university as well. He manages the systems and infrastructure support for the South Carolina Department of Health and Human Services, which means processing $7 billion in claims annually. And it is the only state DHHS system in the nation that is supported by a single university this way. Now, before his current role, Russell served as the Deputy CIO and Assistant General Manager for the City of Los Angeles. And prior to that, he spent 16 years running technology operations at the University of Southern California. And also more than two decades working for the Associated Press, the world's largest news gathering organization, where he worked his way up from a field engineer to become the youngest IT chief in AP history. Hello, Russ. It's great to have you here today. Thank you, Mary Fran, and I appreciate the, the offer of being here today. Really, truly, thank you. Let's um, let's dive into what I have started to think of as the topic that is so top of mind for everybody, especially CIOs, about our post-COVID workplace cultures, about returning to them. I often start out these conversations talking about industry disruption, but we've all been living in such a disrupted state for the past year, that almost seems like a given. And I wanted to, when you and I talked about this earlier, one of the first things you mentioned was the impact this is having on the talent challenges, on talent acquisition and retention for CIOs. So I want to start out with you talking a little bit more about that, about how this big move to mobile and the changes in teleworking, how you're seeing that now as the CIO. Well, thanks, Mary Fran. One of the things is that uh, we, and most of us have realized, and I personally have witnessed as well, is that with the advent of COVID and the mobile and the telework environment, the workspace, the culture itself has really shifted and changed so quickly. Most have not been able to really understand what that really means coming out of COVID itself. Mm -hmm. By example, I had not just one, but several of my staff had offers from other whether they were business enterprise or other peer institutions mm -hmm. in higher ed, for them to go to work for them with a higher pay scale. But guess what? You get to stay at Clemson. If you want to continue teaching at Clemson, that's mm -hmm. fine as well. But you can go to work for us basically in our for us in our company is corporately managed out of Washington, DC. Yeah. That paradigm has really changed how we need to look at our workforce because the competitiveness is starting to occur. And I see this as a paradigm going forward of how as CIOs, how to differentiate ourselves and give that opportunity as well. And I think higher ed is going to be the most challenged by this, whatever, with, with, with that aspect of it. <clears throat> I also see it as a flip, flip coin as an opportunity because for the first time, 
I could send in South Carolina or up in, or, or, you know, and hire someone who's in Denver or in California or in Massachusetts for that matter and do the exact same thing. Now, how you manage that going forward is what's going to be key and what that cultural ch ch change is going to look like within your own department is really what you need to drill down on and understand that transformation that needs to occur is already occurring and how you manage that going forward. Yeah, well, I think that's a great observation too about oftentimes in this industry, we do talk about something changing the dynamic and having a transformative impact. But a lot of times that tends to be, that tends to be a little exaggerated, you know, something that is really just talk. But I think what we've all witnessed over the last several months is that it really is happening. And because uh, I remember a lot of CIOs initially when this happened, they said, my company didn't used to be at all open to the idea of people working remotely. And now that's all changed. Now I can hire anywhere. But of course, I, I often think when I hear that, well, so can everybody else. So that really is a paradigm change, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I think it's something that really needs to be keyed in on. There's going to be those who actually then look at it and say, no, we're going to go back to the normal way, you know, the pre-COVID aspect of it. And I yeah. would argue that if you do that, that you're going to basically set yourself up from, from a differentiating standpoint, that you're actually going to lose those individuals and not offering that flexibility. Mm -hmm. You have a workforce that's of that younger generation that really wants that flexibility. I saw it firsthand. I saw individuals when just uh, basically my wife and I traversing around during COVID in our RV and going places, looking at a younger generation that one person in particular actually had in the back of their, of their vehicle, they had a, a of their, of their truck with a cab on it, a chair with a, with a, with a um, mono mono table with their laptop on it. They were doing work while they were basically traveling. Right. Yeah. This is the new norm. Right? It is. You could be yeah. anywhere to do your work. And I think there's an expectation from that workforce going forward that that's going to be there. Well, um, so much of the force underneath that, too, is the availability of like imagine once we have 5G available everywhere. It's I, I've I've had many uh, over conversations in the past couple of years. I've often asked CIOs, what is the one technology you think will that you really think will change the game? And so often they mention 5G and, you know, once the entire environment everywhere is very easy to tap into the networks, then it just really does change the way everything looks. And, and yeah, you touched on something I think is a, a hot topic across all fronts because that ties into mm -hmm. the Internet of Things as well within that mm -hmm. 5G because most most everyone was grappling with how do you get that last mile or expand yes. the network out to those places which then you could leverage the technology in different ways to be able to pull that back. And I think your point is valid. We're now seeing the stimulus package and the money that's being thrown into the broadband initiative mm -hmm. to address that last mile. And, and I'm of the, you know, this is one of where I think that I'm of the opinion that this, that, that is ground zero for that foundational element. We start mm -hmm. talking about access equity and the play that higher ed needs to be cognizant of in that vein as well, and how yes. to leverage 5G technologies in a, in a different way from the, from a, from a departure from the traditional network and connectivity mm -hmm. uh, models. Yeah, well, and I think you're right, too. It's going to be an extremely new management challenges for businesses, no matter what their industry, if they try to roll the clock back. You know, if they try to say, OK, we're we're going back to the way things were and everybody's going to come into the office, it's going to be even harder to hang on to talent that way. Yes, um, and that comes full circle to our conversation about, you know, how do you manage that talent pool going forward? Yes. It's, you know, it's it, it really becomes one of where how do you add more flexibility and greater value, especially in higher ed, when when we're trying to compete with the business enterprise, well, we can't pay those those uh, at that at that mm -hmm. level that some other you know, companies can. But but if we offer that flexibility, that could be the trade off of being able to then keep that talent uh, within within that sphere within your organization. Yeah, well, and I know we're going to talk even more about this, but but I wanted to pivot just for a minute to tell, tell me more about the scope and the size of your IT organization. Because as I mentioned in your intro, you wear two hats where you're doing these $7 billion worth of processing for the Department of Health and Human Services, but you're also running a very big university. It's the second largest one by student population in South Carolina. 
So those are those are two fairly gargantuan tasks. So talk about the staff and how you have things organized. Well, and I can talk about some of the things we did even coming through the through COVID as well. And that is right. uh, the staff at 325. And most would think from a higher ed perspective, the size and scope. Well, that's pretty darn large. How did Clemson even get to that level? And that's how they're able to do certain things. A hundred and about 110, 115 of that staff are actually part of the support for DHHS. And they're, seg they're separated from traditional aspect of managing the university on the academic front. So if you mm -hmm. basically take those numbers out. So it's a pretty large staff, there's no doubt about it. But what I did was this, is that as part of coming through COVID, I looked at some of our leasing arrangements from, the, from, from buildings that were not university owned. Mm -hmm. And this is six months into COVID. So this is not something that have done recently. This goes back several months where I canceled the leases on those two buildings, right? So that permanently took 110, predominantly those in the DHHS front and some others and permanently put them in a mobile telework environment. But that then took those leasing arrangements and literally put almost a half a million dollars back in perpetuity to the university for what we were basically, and that doesn't even include all of the overhead and all the other things that go into an office environment. Mm -hmm. It was an interesting paradigm because it was one of where we did a lot of surveys up front. We basically asked the, the staff, how do you feel about this going forward? And they were all embracing it and, they, and really wanted to do this. So when I brought mm -hmm. it to the university, of course, they looked at it from a dollar perspective. It made sense to, you know, going forward uh, to leverage that opportunity and we did. What was interesting in that paradigm, and it comes back to the culture and understanding, when individuals were now faced with going in and removing all of their personal items from those, from those buildings, from those offices, yeah. it was emotional. Because all of a sudden it was a realization that, no, I'm not gonna be sitting next to Cindy, or I'm not you know, right. sitting next to John right. anymore. And that realization. So I'm, what I'm saying to you is that not to be cavalier in making those decisions. You need to understand the culture within your organization mm -hmm. and understand what that impact would be. That said, they still embraced it. They knew that it was hard for them to, under, you know, to deal with it at that point in time. But post, they love the aspect and the idea around that aspect. Now, managing it going mm -hmm. forward, and we talked about this before, Mary Fran, is that how do you then transform your organization and the culture in that yes. workplace setting to mm -hmm. really still can you create that effectiveness and that face-to-face -face value that is key to the success of all organizations and mm -hmm. because you have succession planning you have training mentorship all of those things are play heavily into this right what i'm looking to do and have already initiated and that is to look at it from like almost like your national sales organization that cisco has and salesforce has Mm -hmm. They have individuals that are spread out across the entire country and they come together, whether it's weekly, monthly, quarterly basis, yes. they have the collaborative teams yeah. that can get together, mm -hmm. right? So you have to supplant that traditional pre-COVID to what the post-COVID would look like to be able to do that. It's a lot more on your managers and supervisors, you know, yeah. to be honest with you. I think over the course of time, a lot of our management has become complacent and understanding how to truly manage your organization or your individuals. Mm -hmm. and this is a paradigm shift. And I see this again as an opportunity with that flexibility because we saw more than anything else, the productivity through COVID went up mm -hmm. almost 200% from where we were prior and some other areas even more so because wow. the time yeah. element of what you could do virtually. Uh, yes. and the whole aspect of how you do how you work on a regular basis but you also mentioned too when we were discussing this that on top of having all of that extra productivity um I, i've had several cios point out that this settled the argument really forever about can people be as productive at home if anything i hear more worries now on the other end of the spectrum where cios are concerned that people are not taking their time off you know that we have to start managing i hear a lot more talk about empathy and making sure people have time off i know one of the changes you made uh which i applaud and wish the world would do the no meeting friday uh talk about that a little bit how that worked out and why you felt you needed to make a move like that well you keyed in on it there was so much work that was going on and i noticed that that you know mm -hmm. as a cio you're you're 24 by 7. 
I saw emails going back and forth. I saw conversations that were happening, text messages that were going into the evening, late into the night, and then starting again early in the morning as well. Yeah. Granted, we were looking at making sure the continuity for, for the university during COVID was, you know, job one. But we real, I started to realize that this was so continual all the way through, even through the weekends. And then saw when we had in, we, started, we had regular meetings on a, on, a, on a daily basis, I could sense basically the tension starting to build, the weariness, mm -hmm. and you could, feel, you could basically see it with individuals of which then the tiredness starting to set in. And then took a step back and said, okay, what if others are doing? What could we do differently? What do we need to institute? And I instituted the no meeting Friday. Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, what does that mean? That means that individuals get to do whatever they want on that Friday from a work perspective. Okay. So they get to basically wind down and focus on the things that they want to clean up and not be labored by you know, Russ basically calling these two or three meetings during the day and the managers and supervisors doing the same thing on top of it and the Zoom fatigue that goes with it. We yeah. found it really did change and help quell that aspect of it and help transition the culture. Again, this is a cultural move. And I think we, we, we were quick to discount it. These are cultural shifts within your organizations. Leaderships you know, succeed or fail based on the culture of your organization and the alignment that you actually place in understanding the whole aspect of your workforce. And I think being able to do that and communicating with them straight mm -hmm. up, hey, here's the reason why we're doing this. Here's where we see these things are going to be very, very transparent uh, up front. It builds trust, it builds respect. And we actually then found that, yes, it kind of lowered that bar, but yet the effectiveness of the work didn't deter. Yeah. It became more efficient on what they needed to work on at that point in time based on, you know, on the deliverables that were in front of them. Well, I think one of the big management topics that we're going to see a lot more on as we get deeper into 2021 and even into next year is how technology leaders and managers are navigating that balance between employees that are all everybody's working but some are in the office and some are at home and you know as you pointed out you know this is a moving target as everything evolves you mentioned uh, a certain practice that you're doing every morning that you stole from your healthcare past uh, tell us about that. The twofold. One was that we did this pre-COVID and it really helped us when we came into you know, during COVID and we're doing it post as well. And that is just like you would do in the healthcare setting, you have your daily rounds first thing in the morning, right? You, you, if you do your daily rounds, you're going around from patient to patient, making sure everyone's what's going on. And everyone basically learns, gets an understanding of what's going on for that day and what they need to mm -hmm. work on, right? Stealing that model. It was as simple as a, just a call in. It doesn't have to be a Zoom, but it was just a teleconference call, everybody phoning in with the leadership and inviting anyone else outside of that who wanted to be part of that call. So it was not limited to just those individuals, yeah. but everyone could listen in. And it was huh. one of where we just did our rounds with, with, the, with the leadership and our managers so that we had an understanding of what's going on for that day or what's going on for the remainder of the week. So everyone in full transparency has an understanding of what's occurring at any point in time. Very was, and this, this was a new level of transparency for people that were calling in to these. And I, that, was there an, a, would you put out an agenda on something like this? I'm trying to imagine kind no. of the, the organizational politics that you might run into, some of the potholes there. Well, yeah, you're going to get the outliers who may want to basically, ins and, you know, insert, you know, assert themselves in different acts and leverage the opportunity. But we found that once you continue to have that openness, it's mm -hmm. actually less and less going forward. And you address mm -hmm. them accordingly. If they feel that compelled about it, then there must be an issue around it. Or you will find that those that there appears around that individual that's an anomaly will basically take care of whatever that challenge is, because it's usually on them, right? But it was really what we found was that just in doing that and keeping it without an agenda, just going around, mm -hmm. what do you have today? Sarah, what's going on today in your area on the infrastructure side and doing all those rounds. And it yeah. was led, which is really key, is that I have it led by the customer service department. Oh, the, the director, okay. executive director for customer service is the one mm -hmm. who actually facilitates those daily rounds. I'm just a oh. participant. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Because it's really, if you think about it in any IT organization, everything falls back to the customer service front line. 
So it's and it's yeah. so it's really a it's a real benefit for the for the for the customer service group to get an understanding of what's going on within the department and or reflect the what they're coming in because they open it up with how many tickets do we have from yesterday? How many tickets did we close out from yesterday to today? What are the major trending issues? What happened? How we resolved it? And if they, things weren't resolved, then he, he or she could bring that up and then we could answer and, and we can answer it on that call. And that yeah. sets the stage for the day and everyone then breaks up. So everyone knows at that point what is going on. So there's full transparency. And the aspect of inviting anyone outside of it is so that if anyone wants to listen in, they can. Because one of the mm -hmm. things that's really key from a customer service standpoint is a full understanding of what we're dealing with day in and day out. That yeah. empathy, we talked about the empathy aspect of it, goes a yeah. long way in understanding if your customer service department has been deluged. When that person calls in needs something and understanding what they're going through, there's a lot, lot, little bit more empathy and understanding why it maybe took a little bit longer to resolve the issue. Well, and by customers, you're actually referring to the the staff, those 5,000 staff and the IT folks that all of the IT services and operations that you're providing. Faculty, it, staff, and students combined. Really? Oh, okay. And so that's, that's and so it goes from one end to the spectrum mm -hmm. to the other, and that, yeah. and, that, and it's so we address it in that way, and we find that it's been highly effective to be able to do it in that manner to set the stage on a daily basis. Wow. Well, and you also gave me an example when we talked before about kind of the inverse happening, where communication can flow up from what you're hearing out in the field in with a um, the leadership team because you do an end of the day call i think maybe a few times a week where you're giving more of a window into what you're hearing in the field i thought that was interesting because that's often a big complaint of people that get to the top of the management structures they know less and less about what's actually happening with everybody else well and that was you bring up a key point one of the things that occurred that we didn't anticipate and 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 it was to uh, a lot of my peer institutions were asking, how did this happen? And that was the provost actually joined on our five o'clock call, end of day call, mm -hmm. to get an understanding of what was going on in IT and how we were managing the classroom environment, how we were managing the online environment, the hybrid, all the things that were going on. And the provost was turning around and taking that information in the weekly, uh, weekly report and sending it to the board. And so it was Great. everything on the, on the academic side that he, he was dealing with, as well as what was going on the IT front and flowing that up to the board as well. And I think this is some of which then the dynamic had shifted and changed, where you now have that top, you know, bottom to top and, and, and from top to bottom communication that we didn't see prior. And, mm -hmm. and I always joke about it, but it's true. What we learn more than anything else through this, and then we're hoping that it stays this way post-pandemic, is that they realize that IT is relevant. Yes. Well, and, and that's that's something <clears throat> that's certainly something that we can all support, isn't it? Um, and this you we actually kind of um, previewed my next question was about the kind of changes you're seeing in the and the culture of the organization that you really want to keep post pandemic. I mean, there's some things that, uh, you know, especially the people like uh, I'll speak for my tribe, the extroverts were really interested in getting back around people again and being able to do you. You referred to it as the water cooler effect, you know, where you may not even be taking part in those conversations in the hallway, but you're learning things about what's happening in other places in the company. Um, the so talk a little bit about what you hope most to keep post-pandemic like let's we'll we'll fast forward a year and a half from now when finally this is all behind us what are, are there changes that you really feel are going to kind of settle into the foundation especially within an IT culture well I think you know I think everyone no one has the crystal balls to how it's going to then play out because these are again these are cultural shifts but I envision how this is going to way it's work out is that those the introverts and extroverts aspects of it, and this is specific to just IT. Really, if you think about it, you know, you know the whole aspect of IT individuals. There are a lot of us within IT that basically like to be alone, like to work in in solitude. That's what we found with the effectiveness. And then you're going to have those extroverts that need that interchange. Yeah. If you underscore comes back to what I was talking about, the managers and supervisors and HR have to look at this differently and understanding 
the culture within the organization and the individuals themselves and allow that flexibility. I foresee that you're going to have those who are introverted that you have to manage, making sure that they're just not disappearing, you know, off mm -hmm. the, going off the yes. grid, but also those who are basically the, that need that face-to-face, -face, having that regular meeting, whether it's on a weekly basis or bi-weekly, bringing teams together. While simultaneously in a hybrid manner, you could do it via a Zoom or other virtual mm -hmm. using teams, leverage the technology to actually then replicate that whole aspect of what we're talking about for that water cooler effect. Correct. I really, it'd be, it'll be surprising to me if it goes back 100% that everybody's back boots on the ground and in the offices, as opposed mm -hmm. to that hybrid back and forth. And the reason why I would think that why that why that won't occur is that the, the aspect of everyone back is that the time element that we wasted between meetings going to and from that aspect of it you think about the reason why 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 was it so effective that you're losing 20 30 minutes in the before the meeting and after the meeting of which then getting people together and then and then departing that doesn't happen any longer it literally happens instantaneously. You go yeah. from one to the next, and there is that yin and yang, it's a good and bad. But I mm -hmm. see going forward, that blended hybrid approach going forward that really could be highly effective within an organization. Mm -hmm. One, satisfy the aspect of those who are extroverted, making sure that your customer services group still stay face-to-face -face, because your customers expect that. They'll still <laughs> do it hybrid because they use chat, they use other means, which we've been arguing all along, using digital to be more effective in how you resolve those issues. But right. that personal interaction should occur. I'm of the argument that if you do that, then you have to then have those group meetings where you all get together, where mm -hmm. larger groups get together and just have that collaborative session. Not so much a fixed agenda, but more of a collaborative together, whether it's a lunch meeting or you're going you know, for a barbecue or whatever, but making sure you're actually deliberately making the water cooler effect happen mm -hmm. in a different way. Yeah. Well, and that's actually gives us a nice opportunity here to pivot to talk a little bit more about strategic technology and business priorities and going forward and thinking like, you know, over the next year for Clemson or really for any higher education institution. Um, I know that, that you mentioned digital. I know you've done a lot with creating an analytics group at Clemson as part of your IT organization. Talk a little bit about the data strategy, about digital and data and what sort of trends you're seeing in higher education and what kind of sort of milestones you think we've already reached? I think that one of the dynamic changes within this, and I was fortunate that I had started building the analytics team pre-COVID mm -hmm. and just, it just, you know, fortuitously served us unbelievably going into COVID where we could do things that we could create and pull data in that gave us a whole different perspective and idea of what was transforming during that period of time, low hanging as an example, when everyone, all students left and went yeah. home, right? After the break of over a year ago, it was one of where we wanted to get an understanding of where they were living, right? Via zip, we, what we did via zip code, we used mm -hmm. analytics to then say, okay, what time zones are they living in to be able to then give that information to the faculty so when they're teaching a class to understand that if they're teaching the class at nine o'clock in the morning at Clemson, that it may be 6 a.m. for someone who's actually went back to Los Angeles, right? right? So understanding the time difference. You can make informed decisions going forward. We leveraged it, I mean, really it was from, a, you know, from the dashboard side of things, it was huge as we were one of the most aggressive in testing throughout most universities and tracking the testing results going forward, right? So using analytics really helps solidify that. But one of the one of the things that to your point is that going forward, what they realized was this, is that because I took individuals that were from other departments, these siloed analytics individuals and brought them together in a shared services model centrally to the IT department. And that's really where the dynamic change occurs, especially specifically in higher ed. There's so much analytics that are coming out of institutional research or it's coming out of the business enterprise. Mm -hmm. And you need to bring those together because they cross over. 
And then you find that there's a way of which then when you bring those like minds together, that all of a sudden you're thinking about things differently. As an example, we were we've, a couple of individuals I brought in were from the space management, from the, from the oh. facilities department. We now had the capability during COVID, now post-COVID. One, looking at the building refresh, what needs to be done from a maintenance standpoint, how to generate a priority and have a true cost analysis and tracking metrics across the university. Also mm -hmm. through those metrics then lay into it, what is the flow of individuals across the campus and layer that against what you would want to do from a maintenance standpoint. Right. Right. And then for us, more than anything else, was the retrofitting of the classrooms. How many classrooms, what they had in there, what are, mm -hmm. what's going on within the classrooms themselves, the effectiveness of the technology within those classrooms, and tracking that as well. So mm -hmm. there is a lot, to, I mean, if not bringing those individuals together and understanding how to support research simultaneously, it would have been independent in those silos. So what I'm saying to you is that if there's any opportunity to bring it centrally, but you have to do it in a way that you're still serving those silos even better than when those individuals left there or else everyone feels the tree hugging, you took away from me, right? I, you know, you left me out in the cold when in fact, if you do it in, in really in a highly effective way, and actually you get elements of scale that you didn't think possible prior. Yeah. Well, and when you said uh, leaving me out in the cold, it reminded me the, of uh, another topic that I know is is very high on your list, which is about the diversity and inclusion aspects of technology itself, the, the digital divide that exists, uh, you know, even as students are going off to the university, we talked about this a little before, um, that there is not a level playing field even coming in. In fact, in education, the K-12 grades seem to be doing a better job of it than what you've seen in higher ed. Talk a little bit more about that, about what you think the, where the gaps are and if there's anything happening right now that are, are working to close them. That's it. You, you know, you're keying in on the access and equity issue. That's really one of the largest challenges. And I look at the, yeah. the DNI aspect of it. And I get, I had asked this question consistently. Yeah. But, but I look at DNI from this perspective. I look at it from the from the from the individual who's handicapped or on the spectrum, on through to those of color from underserved communities, and understanding mm -hmm. that entire end to end. It's really yeah. key when you start looking at access and equity and diversity and inclusion. Some of the things that we've done and will continue to do going forward for me is that assigning individuals within your own department, expanding their roles and actually making it part of their responsibility to actually drive that aspect of it from a DNI perspective, making sure that we're doing our due diligence in the rank and file. But what, I'm, what you're talking about on the technology front is really key, specifically within higher ed and the K through 12s have done better at it and that is this, is that as an example, you have a, a student who's from an affluent family, they're on it, they're on it, they're, you know, they're on a MacBook that's 20, you know, $2,300. You have someone who's coming in from an underserved community mm -hmm. and she has a Chromebook, right? The aspect of it, and on top of it, neither one is LTE enabled, okay. which is really key. You talked about the 5G element that's really key in this. Yes. Anywhere, anytime connectivity. If you lay, if you level the playing field, and I'm of the opinion, it could be the iPad Pro, it could be the, it could be the Surface Pro. They're the two biggest mm -hmm. that are out there. Mm -hmm. You could use that as a platform, as a service across all fronts, and that then creates that equal access and equity. Universities mm -hmm. need to provide that and own it, not the individuals themselves. And that way, you can then lay on top of it all the digital applications that are specific one from an institutional standpoint across the university, but also the departments themselves could then, if they're in the computer science department or they're in the humanities, the applications that they have developed to be able to be more digital and more in line with their, from their curriculum layered on top of it. Then you start taking eBooks. You start to write the whole aspect mm -hmm. of, you know, the eBook aspect of it. There's come a long ways, especially through COVID and layer that into it as well. It becomes a low cost option instead of, the whole aspect of buying books and carrying them around with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, these technologies are already there. Grammarly is another one that you could layer in within that, that helps individuals during their writing to help mm -hmm. them improve as well. So there's, as an example, so there's so many different facets, but the key thing is, is to have that level playing field across all fronts and then layer on top of it. 
Yeah. We've seen, we've seen it happen in other institutions. Uh, Ohio State, Kentucky have done it with the iPad with zero touch deployment. Good. But the one key aspect that's missing is having it LTE enabled with where, where you're in the cost factors have come down so much for higher ed. You could do mm-hmm. this and it's not really a behemoth to get there. Right. Uh, leasing arrangements. And that's how I'm, I'm looking at this is that should be the play across to be mm-hmm. able to make that access and equity equal from a learning perspective. And then each each in department can layer on their own specific needs within mm-hmm. that platform. Well, I know that you are connected with a lot of other CIOs, both in higher ed and through the Carolinas. Have um, have you been having these kind of discussions with your CIO peers? Yes, I have. Specifically, mm-hmm. I formed a group within the, within South Carolina among the peer institutions, both public and private mm-hmm. uh, alike. And one of the things that we're talking about is an example, and I and I would argue we need to do this across all other states as well, specifically within the higher ed framework, is that when the stimulus packages start coming out and start pushing the whole aspect of the last mile broadband initiatives, that they should really be embracing those CIOs collectively to get an understanding mm-hmm. of where they actually should be deploying, what that should look like, and what prioritization should actually flow within that as well, instead of letting your state legislatures then lobbyists push that forward. Because right. one, if we've learned anything in the past is that when we were pushing for those the broadband initiatives, what everyone talks about this, and that's not this is not this is not something of which then Russ is making up. Certain certain vendors would go out and basically establish one connection in a county and say, we actually, we're serving the, the entire mm. county with broadband because uh-huh. the rules and regulations didn't say you had to do every single person. It was the way it was written up. And they mm. received their funding because of that as well. We've learned yeah. a lot from this. And going forward with the aspect of 5G, this is an opportunity we have never seen before to capitalize on it in a way we've never thought possible that could serve the greater good from K through 12 and K through 20 of which mm-hmm. then you have that connectivity piece. Good, good. Well, and I think it's it's um, it's especially great when CIOs can get together and essentially use their collective voice to raise these issues in the industry. Because uh, when you think of the couple trillion dollars that get spent on technology, CIOs, you're all the targets for who they want to sell these technologies to. Yeah, and we always, uh, you know, it, it, one of the things that comes out is we're, we're cautiously optimistic as CIOs, and this is both in business enterprise, healthcare, and yeah. in higher ed, is that, you know, we've always been, you know, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain, right? That's mm-hmm. what that's the game that we've been playing for so long. Yeah. Because, and then because you're arguing, okay, are we a cost center or are we a value add to the to the corporation or, or to the or toward the institution, right? Mm-hmm all of a sudden now we're out from behind that curtain and now individuals are asking the right questions how do we do this yes what do we do to move this forward and i think that collectively we share that aspect of it even with a forum like what we're doing right now to Mm -hmm. collectively share those ideas these are not differentiators between from what we call you know coopetition right right? and that's what you want to get to uh, it's more along the lines of really what we could do from we have we have so much experience to help guide that and move it forward effectively. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I know one of the kind of important technology aspects to always talk about in these um, in, in our leadership live shows is the cybersecurity aspects of. Uh, and they are, I think, especially thrown into high relief because of the teleworking situation and, and you know, just the situation with data everywhere and the, the invisible walls of the corporations and the institutions. What have, what sort of things can you tell us about uh, how your views have changed about the impact of cybersecurity and, you know, what you've what you've done to address that, both at Clemson and what you're hearing from your other CIO peers in higher ed. Uh, it's one of the things that's still keeping us awake at night. It's still something oh, okay. interesting because if you look it at it. probably always will be, right? Right. Ransomware, <laughs> ransomware is on the rise on yeah. all fronts. Um, and, and we've seen it across, you know, with solar winds that occurred during this whole situation. And I think that what, what, what it is, is this, is that 
uh, we really need to keep our eye on it. But the difference is, is this, is you're looking at that mobile workforce, educating and then flipping how you're actually managing your security because you're not just mm-hmm. not side in, it's not inside in anymore. It's outside in, inside out, because you now have to protect the individual in their desktop environment at home. Yeah. Really key when you have other influences and other things that are coming into it. I mean, they're targeting text messaging is now one of the one of the forefronts with links to them. Everyone's getting hit with the spam mm-hmm. on that aspect of it. How do you manage that piece? which is really key. One of the things we did just recently, I put together uh, in conjunction with uh, the state legislative uh, branch uh, and brought in those even from the DOD and some speakers that were really key within South Carolina and out of Washington, DC and and put together a small business association cyber summit because we don't think about it in the communities at large as small businesses, those small Mm -hmm. businesses are the most actually targeted and they don't have IT resources. They don't. So, and I think there's an opportunity for universities as we're looking at this to serve differently, create the resource page, create models of which then helps them guide them what they should or shouldn't do from the cybersecurity front while simultaneously maintaining what we do within the institution itself. Yeah. So we're not so closed minded about it. Again, this is where if you really want to look at security, it has to be a team approach. And that's why working with our peer institutions. I pushed my CISO to get together with the other CISOs from other other institutions and work mm-hmm. with them on, on a you know, monthly and quarterly basis so you understand what the threat analysis is. So jointly, you can then figure out what you need to do to be able to serve it better and what technologies you need to protect yourself and potentially mm-hmm. do it in a shared services type model. Because yes. this, this is really one of which then it's continuing to grow. There are different vectors. There are different aspects of how they're targeting us from a security standpoint and how we be we need to be even even much more proactive than what we were before. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and given that there are so many and really so many well-funded public universities, it's, you know, it, it is such a public good to be able to do that sort of outreach and help that way. Great. Let me see. I wanted to also uh, ask you, but before we wrap up, I know we had mentioned uh, we were talking about the the Clemson Forward Plan, how the pre-COVID plan is now being redefined a bit as we start coming out of the pandemic. But that what's very important for IT organizations and IT leaders to do is make sure that the technology strategies are essentially realigning with the new business strategies that are emerging in all sorts of institutions. Uh, tell us, talk about that a little bit. I thought you had some really great observations on that. This comes back to looking at your overall portfolio within the IT framework and understanding mm-hmm. and really drilling down on the divest to invest type models. Uh, looking at, as an example, if you basically then pull all of your software licensing together and get an understanding, this comes back to the analytics team, get an understanding of the actual usage of the software itself, where you may find if you're, you know, you're spending a million dollars for a software package and only 20 are using. Now, mm-hmm. that 20 are bringing in 10 million in grants, that may be the reason why, but for the most part, you really want to do that due diligence and understanding that whole aspect of divest and invest. What, mm-hmm. what, what you're talking about, though, is that with your strategic plans, Every institution has one, making sure that on the IT front, everything that you're doing from a procurement standpoint and everything that you're doing, which comes back to governance around it as well, that it aligns with your strategic plan, Clemson Forward and others, other institutions have different names for them, that mm-hmm. make sure it does. It actually then sees where does it fit? Because if it doesn't fit, then why are you procuring it? Yeah. Right, yeah. and that's really what's key. So you have a governance model that's over top of it, not to the behem- not to the, to the point where it's so much friction that you can't get things delivered, but to mm-hmm. the extent of which then there is stakeholders that are in, that are basically have input into it that then can actually then say, okay, it does align. Here's where we see this first year, five year, ten years out mm-hmm. that, that that alignment, and in doing so it makes you more effective in your procurement of what you're doing from, from a technology stack. Yes. Now, so, as, so as your strategic plan changes from an institution standpoint, from a corporation, making sure that you're, you're aligning with it as well. 
too mm-hmm. often we've seen it and some of the things we've learned coming into COVID as well. How many things did we not use during this entire time as opposed to things that we did and leveraged that? point. Do you think there'll be a lot of, uh, it seems to me, I've, I've heard the topic come up more often now with CIOs about renegotiating contracts with their various tech vendors and providers, because just because of this, where they discovered, you mentioned one very popular software package that you weren't sure it was really benefiting um, everybody it should, but when you looked at your own data analytics, uh, evaluation of it, you discovered that the humanities people were using it as much as the computer science people. And yeah. these kind of um, illuminating these facts about what's really in use, I feel like it's going to prompt a whole wave of new discussions around contracts and what should be measured and that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that? Well, and, and to the chagrin of some of the vendors that are out there as well. I mean, one of the things is that, and I can share with you as well, because I've done it publicly, so this is not something that's new. Okay. And that is, we have, we're one of the, we're one of the top in the country used leveraging Adobe and the creative cloud mm-hmm. uh, and, and working very closely with Adobe we were early adopters within this. And then, but I wanted to get an understanding against the cost, what the usage was. So we internally, because mm-hmm. the vendor couldn't provide it for us, or maybe they didn't want to, we actually worked with it ourselves and found what the usage was of what of the Adobe platform, because it's an enterprise platform for faculty, staff, and students. So yes. we basically, from, a, from an analytics standpoint, we broke down those different classifications, separated them out, looked at who was actually you know, logging in, tracking what they were doing, for what X amount of time, we could actually drill it down to who our star was who used Adobe. And she was she was one of the ones that used it more so than anyone else in the entire university on a regular basis. But yeah. the key findings was this, is that, yeah, we were at 40, 30, 37 to 42% usage across the board from a, mm-hmm. from a technology, a software platform, unheard of. That means there's some areas where it's 60% and some were down, you know, 10, 15%. Right. We found that was surprising to us. The humanities, which you would expect, right? Or your, you know, your communications, marketing, those leveraging Adobe. But guess what? Mm-hmm. The computer science department was leveraging it equal to in some areas, even more so than what we we're doing in the humanities front. So that gave us an understanding of the overall usage, but also one of where how do we retool our training and support for it, knowing mm-hmm. where the where the emphasis is and where it's not. Because if we had looked at it just from a just from a, you know norm what you would do normally you would expectation you would align yourself in the wrong direction as opposed to looking at what the actual overall usage was and use and and then, and then aligning yourself more effectively to that model. So that I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's one that we come ties yeah. back to where the analytics piece comes into this, how you manage technology more appropriately, and then mm-hmm. how do you then go manage it going forward and again renegotiating contracts knowing what the overall effectiveness is of that technology and who it actually serves and the cost benefit analysis. Well, I've been involved in a couple of CIO panels recently in discussion forums, that sort of thing. And I, there's a, I see a very visible level of interest that spikes when we start talking about some of these practicalities about, you know, coming out of the pandemic, what is it actually going to mean for the insourcing or outsourcing that we've done. I think we've talked a lot in our our time here about the workplace culture, and I think the people aspects of it are hugely important, but they also drive all these other ways where everything has to shift a little bit in the way we look at things. And and which leads me to my my wrap-up question. I've been asking everybody, what has have all these pandemic challenges taught you as a leader. And when we talked about this earlier, you actually mentioned the word nirvana. So I want you to talk about what was, what became nirvana for for Russ Carlotto. I think that, you know, we, we talked about it and I think most everyone else could see this as well. What one of the biggest takeaways from the whole mm-hmm. the whole aspect of you know, reaching nirvana and that is when you actually have a single focus, a single direction, and a mm-hmm. single vision of what you're trying to achieve, what I learned more than anything else, and I'm so proud of the teams, is stepping up and everyone doing exactly what they needed to do to be productive, mm-hmm. to drive that single vision and achieve it. Because of that, and other institutions as well, 
we actually saved the university from its own demise because of mm -hmm. COVID. Yeah. So that single, what, you, what I learned more than anything else from a leadership paradigm, we talk about it all the time, the single vision, the single team, mm -hmm. making sure you're communicating transparency from top to bottom. We were doing it in pockets in different areas. Yeah. When COVID happened, everybody came to the fold. Mm -hmm. Everyone aligned. Everyone wanted to be part of it. There was no one that basically you know, went off the rails. Everyone was basically straightforward. And it basically then aligned to what we needed to do to be mm -hmm. able to do the business continuity of learning at Clemson University and do it effectively. And we achieved that goal. And it wasn't Russ. It was the mm -hmm. organization itself coming together with a single focus and a single vision and, and knowing what we needed to do to achieve that goal. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that. And also just for sharing all these other wonderful thoughts and plans going forward for, um, I think we've, we've talked a lot about various aspects of IT leadership that have very reasonably risen to everybody's top of mind these days. So it's been a real pleasure having you here to talk about all this, Russ. Thanks for joining me today. It's been a pleasure as well. And, and thank you for the opportunity, Mary Fran. This is a good conversation. And, and for my fellow CIOs out there, we're in this together. We have a long ways to go, but I am op cautiously optimistic. The changes down the road, we're going to get there and be better than where we were uh, pre and during COVID. Solidarity, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, if you joined us a little late today, don't despair. You can watch the full episode of my conversation with Russ later today, both here on LinkedIn for a while, but also on CIO.com and on IDG te IDG's Tech Talk channel on YouTube. CIO Leadership Live is also available as an audio podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Russ Carlotto of Clemson University as much as I did, and that you'll join me for our next episode of Leadership Live on Wednesday, June 2nd at noon Eastern again, when I'll be joined by CIO Alan Cullop of DaVita. Thanks again for joining us today, and thank you to our new sponsor, Cisco, for the um, a Leadership Live show and podcast. And do take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel, IDG Tech Talk, where you can indulge yourself in watching all of our previous episodes of CIO Leadership Live, stretching all the way back to late 2017. Thanks so much for joining us today, and stay well and safe out there, and we'll see you back here in two weeks, I hope. Take care.